Did you start your software? Okay, thanks. I do have one thing to say, and that's that podcasting before 11 is really unnatural. <laughs> yeah, it feels a little weird. I mean, I've been up for a little bit because my dad was just here. I had breakfast with him, so I've been up for a little bit. I've had some conversations with, about this and people say, oh, I get my best ideas in the morning when I wake up fresh. And other people are like, no, I have my best ideas at night when I'm a night owl. All my ideas come when it's dark and I feel kind of more inside. <laughs> well, most people become podcasters so they don't have to wake up early, but it seems like all of us were up before nine o'clock. Yeah, I was up at about nine, 9.20. I got up at seven, but that's because I had to bring my cat to the vet, so... Well, I was up at 6.30, and I don't know if it came from my dream or not, but I awoke with this fully-fledged idea of a Delizzo Guitarian mind as a mushroom, and I couldn't get back to sleep because I was too excited about it. <laughs> what? <laughs> You'll have to wait for the meat on that for later, Victor. It, it might be total shit. Like, 80% of my ideas are total shit, but 20% they land, so... <laughs> oh, no, wait. Let's get this started. Yeah. All right, welcome listeners. We're on the Pill Pod 80 shit. 83? Something like that. Just say all the numbers and cut the right one in. 84. All right. 82, 83, 84. <laughs> it's one of those. I'm pretty it's not 82, I don't think. Um I thought we thought that the Pill Pod could use some serialization. Just a dash because we've done a lot of non-serial episodes and in the past we've done different series. Uh, the Fight Night comes to mind. Did we? What are other series that we've done? Phenomenology, I guess, was a mm, series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. S some side series. I guess you could call the interviews a kind of running series. Yeah, kind of, but they're pretty unrelated often. No, thematically unrelated. But exactly. the format is... Yeah. We thought we needed to get back to the series, the serialization. Exactly. So exactly. we need some continuity. We are doing... Communism. Hmm. Nice. Actually, Ooh. not not actually existing communism, but the idea of communism. So not even Marxism specifically, but we have these two idea words in the title: idea and communism. But they don't matter, though, right, Pills? <laughs> well, I guess we'll see. Remains to be seen. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a test of a, a long-standing trope on the show that ideas don't matter. Maybe maybe this one does. Well, Badu says, I mean, this is pre, pre prefacing, but he does say if you don't have a truth procedure, your idea by itself doesn't matter. So right. he agrees with me. I, would just really, like I, don't, to... I don't remember that caveat in your in your statement. <laughs> I, there was always an asterisk. Sorry, Matt. What were you saying? Oh, no, I was going to say, uh, I was going to come on and be relatively critical um, of elements of this article today. Uh, that was my plan. I had a few things written up. But then last night I went to go see Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, and I realized that everything Adorno said about the culture industry was not only right, but actually inadequate. Uh, uh, now I've committed myself to the complete liquidation of the market system. Because if it can't even get a dinosaur movie done properly, then there's just no hope for it. And <laughs> we have to radically transform the system immediately like tomorrow or even yesterday really would have been better well that's it just go see movies and you will be a communist after <laughs> jurassic world is the one thing that radicalized why me did you go see that? Hey, my wife really likes the jurassic park well she's been a one of those like kind of long-standing fans who appreciates oh, okay. the franchise is dumb 
or has become dumb Fair. but just wants to see it end. And by the way, it is spectacularly dumb. Oh, Anyone nice. who's a fan of Chris Pratt back in the Parks and Rec days should be extremely disappointed in all of the things he's done since, except maybe Guardians, but, you know, yeah. middling. Anyway, idea of communism. They're both in the title. Idea, mm-hmm. this is a philosophy word that stretches all the way back to the origin of political philosophy, at least. And uh, communism, which was first... I think it's like an outgrowth of Enlightenment political philosophy. A French, I don't remember remember his name, but a French guy said it first, began identifying as a communist. Mm. Uh, but, of course, but of course, it's mostly Marx. What did you say his name was? Uh, Fourier, was that him? I don't know. It was end of the 18th century. Yeah, dates match up. Oh, interesting. I, I could have sworn he had a D in his surname, but maybe that's it. So our series today and following will be on, we don't have it set in stone totally, but we, maybe I'm speaking for us, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but actual power seems unassailable these days and nominal democratic representation through electoral politics. We have very little agency and it feels like it's it's not going anywhere. It's not increasing, though even without political agency we do have some agency when it comes to what we think yeah well i mean i think think it's always been the case i mean i don't know if ever if any i don't know if there's ever been a time when people were really like empowered like like really uh it does seem particularly it does seem particularly like bad right now um to a certain extent but like how do you like say more pills like like in what way do you feel uh well outside of a few Union unionization efforts that are being met with some success and are super exciting. Besides that, it feels like as a as a Western left, the only thing we ever have to hope for is Bernie running again. Is like the limit of any imaginative faculty that we have about a, a future that looks different from the present. I should say that. These kind of pieces were very, very popular uh, in the aftermath of 2008. Uh, it's not just this one. This was one of the more famous examples of it. Uh, then after 2016, you had a bunch of articles come out, talk about why democratic socialism was resurging. And I think what all of these demonstrate, and by the way, I fall into this paradigm, is a desire uh, for a genuine political alternative to what we could call the liberal tradition or the liberal capitalist tradition, uh, but one that retains its most progressive elements uh, without abandoning them to revanchism, reactionaryism, whatever you want, conservatism, postmodern conservatism, whatever you want to call it. And I absolutely uh, accept uh, this kind of yearning for an alternative because I do see it as an expression uh, of what socialists have always called uh, a desire for social freedom, uh, the ability to kind of remake the world uh, in line with our image, uh, which itself would mean that we'd be less alienated. Now, how to go about doing that and which kind of model we should follow, as we all know, uh, the left tends to divide pretty much every second minute or so uh, on those questions. The this that Matt is talking about has not been introduced yet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I will introduce it now. The this that Matt is referring to is The Idea of Communism, which is a book, actually three books, from three conferences since 2009. So this is back to the uh, post-2008 housing crisis that's caused that little, little meltdown thing. And attending these conferences, sold out conferences, 
where a bunch of academics, including the most famous living Marxists you could think of, for the most part. I don't think David Harvey was at at least the first one, but um, Zizek, Badieu, Terry Eagleton, Susan Buck Morris, Ranciere, Negri, I could go on. Nancy. You drift. Nancy, you could get, yeah. So hard. we thought we'd bounce around these conference books because there's a bunch of punchy, short ideas put in article form that come from the papers they presented at these conferences. We thought we'd see what's up, what's relevant. Um, as since since 2009, everything feels a little bit worse, especially with the uh, the the Brexit, the Trump, the reactionary right conspiracy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we are here to bring you a couple episodes on. Well, fuck what? Communism. Yeah. The question that we ask ourselves every morning when we get up, could the world of tomorrow be better than today instead of worse? Alternatives. Alternatives. Alternatives to the shitty thing that we have right now. Uh, I will say also for the listener, I don't know when they'll be listening to this, I guess, but right now I'm just noticing on Verso, they have a 30% off sale, all their books. So if you want, you can get the idea of communism from Verso Press for 30% off right now. Yeah, we're starting in, we're starting in volume one and there's three volumes mm-hmm. i only own two of them so i might have to get that third one i'd just like to share a somewhat amusing anecdote uh, about one of the editors of the spasm um costas duziness because uh, costas was actually going to be my supervisor once upon a time uh, but i met him later on in 2015 and he is actually the reason i'm married now of all things um because i was hanging out with costas uh, and his wife and we were talking because i was at the conference and my future wife although i didn't know it was there with me and when Costas's wife disappeared, he turned and looked at both of us and was like, okay, she's gone. Here's 10 pounds. I need you to go buy me a pack of smokes right now. Make sure she does not know about it. Then come back and, you know, I'll get you a beer or something. And lo and behold, me and my future wife went on our first walk together to go buy cigarettes for Costas Duziness, <laughs> avoided his wife at all costs, brought them back. And we talked about that for the rest of the night. So nice. you're 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 outing Costas Duzinas as as secretly smoking behind his wife's back on a public podcast. Yeah, hopefully she's not listening. Hopefully, hopefully she's <laughs> not listening. Yeah. Yeah, but look at the beautiful thing that came out of it. How could exactly. they be mad? Yeah, we exactly. we didn't get communism, but we got Matt married. Um, yeah. So <laughs> Costas Duzinas and Slavoj Žižek are the editors of these volumes. So you know, uh, the thank power you very of much. tobacco to bring people together. Just exactly. Just me. <laughs> right to a cigarette company it's like you too <laughs> anyway we have to we have to start on this question the the politics theorists which is victor and matt half of this podcast what right do you <laughs> as self-identified liberals have to talk about communism and why should we listen to you on this when you don't believe this shit well i don't think i i don't not believe it uh i think that we do need alternatives um, I don't think. But I, by the way, this is not my question to you. This is a question that about about five to ten percent of our listening audience will have of you. We're heading it off. Is that what they? And also, like, I mean, who do? No, because they don't. If they haven't heard us, they don't understand your version of liberalism. So this is your chance to uh, to wash your hands of the dirty liberalism. Why? Well, I mean, yeah, I would say that for me, you know, like it's not so much that I'm committed to all the <clears throat> all the implications of kind of like the 
the caricature of liberal <clears throat> liberalism that um, you know anti-liberal communists have. Uh, just like I think it would be stupid to be a liberal and and base your critiques of communism on the like shitty caricatures. And in fact, speaking of shitty caricatures, for my tutorial in the class I'm TAing this summer, <clears throat> I actually just before this had to read uh, sections of Frederick Hayek's The Road to Serfdom where he presents a very, very good example of like a shitty caricature of communism as being like this centralized planned thing with like no freedom of any kind. It's like, well, that's not necessarily uh, that doesn't necessarily, you know, encompass all the possibilities of what communism means. Um, but if you base your critiques of communism on what Frederick Hayek says, then I think you're really missing out. And I think similarly, if you're going to base your critiques of liberalism on like what neoliberalism has done, then you're missing out on like the potential emancipatory uh, possibilities that at least uh, some ideas in liberalism have. So I think it's not so much that I'm a committed liberal as much as I am committed to avoiding caricatures of ideological positions and taking what are good ideas from each and accepting those things without being worried that, oh my God, I'm contaminated by like liberal ideas. That's just a stupid intellectual way of thinking about things. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really not for one ideology as much as I am taking the good ideas from the various things that make sense, which is why I'm excited to read uh, the different ideas uh, of communism that will come up in this series. I guess you could summarize that as a kind of uh, syncretist political position, maybe a left-leaning syncretism. Very left-leaning. And as stupid as Hayek's criticisms of, of Marxism are, they're not even they don't hold a candle to James Lindsay's criticisms because <laughs> according to James Lindsay, Marxism is Gnosticism, which is just about the stupidest sentence I could string together with a random text generator. Yeah, and, you know, I will, I will say and I, and, I, and I will say yeah. that like Hayek's criticisms, like I do think that like he does do a good job of criticizing centralized planning. Like I think I think centralized yeah. planning is probably a bad idea, <laughs> but I don't think most communists or socialists are for centralized planning. I think that's a pretty like fringe position. But anyway, we're talking about yeah. idea of communism, not actually existing communism. Matt, yeah, exactly, why, why, exactly. Are you, why are you allowed to talk about Marxism or communism? Well, like my short answer would be if you're going to lodge as stupid an argument as that towards me, internet people, then I'm just going to throw it right back at you and be like, well, why are you allowed to talk about liberalism, bitches? You know, <laughs> don't get, be bringing your kind of red bullshit around me. Uh, but no, you know, if you want to have a more sophisticated conversation about it, I identify as a democratic socialist and a liberal. Uh, I think those two things actually go together very well. Uh, and, you know, we've already hashed out why it is that I think Marx's approach to liberalism is more sympathetic uh, than a lot of the more ultra leftist uh, would give him credit for. You yeah, know, go listen North to the go listen to the own the libs episode if you want to hear more about Matt and I's position on liberalism. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, so I'm not going to rehash that whole thing. Yeah. Look, you know, I'm sympathetic, like I said, to a lot of this book's ambitions, which is articulating, I think, above all else, a desire uh, for an alternative that carries the best features of liberalism forward while chucking all the bullshit uh, and creating something. You mean that's, communism. Yeah, that's great. Well, this is what I'm going to get at. Creating something new uh, that's stamped by the best features of the old. Right. To use the Marxist term in the critique of the Gotha program. Uh, and I prefer to associate with democratic socialism. And part of the reason for that is I think politically and rhetorically, there's a lot more gas in that label than in the communist label, uh, because people tend to associate democratic socialism a little bit more with the Nordic model, for example, which has been extremely successful, uh, or you know, a variety of West uh, European social democratic or socialist parties that have implemented some good stuff. 
if you want to identify as a communist and you think that that label has a little bit more traction to it uh, than the democratic socialist one, I'd be open to listening. Maybe I could identify as a liberal communist and just piss off even more people. Uh, but I've yet to be convinced uh, by that. See, we so. have this problem where you keep going to reality. The whole point is the idea of communism. The idea of communism. <laughs> All right, yeah. so let's talk about these conferences just briefly before we read uh, Badiou's entry into the conferences. This book was, or these books, this one specifically, Volume 1, came out immediately after the bank bailout. Um, austerity measures were kind of being the solution to the financial crisis, especially in the EU. And from what I've noticed, the talks in this book are kind of optimistic, maybe more optimistic than they would have been uh, post-Trump post and, and post-Brexit. Because Zizek writes in the intro, quote, the collapse of the banking system in 2008 marked the beginning of a return to full-blown history. So, Eric, I know you looked into this. Uh, did I get everything or what did I leave out? Um, nothing else. You mentioned, I mean, that it was that it was so popular that the venue had to be moved, I think, two or three times to get more room for people. It was, yeah. a, it was like a sold-out event. It was probably the I don't know, the biggest event discussing ideas of communism in since the aughts. Um. I read an article in The Guardian uh, that was released around this time where they're like, the hottest ticket in London this weekend isn't to see Les Miserables or to go see, you know, I think it was like Oasis, but a conference on communism with such firebrands as Terry Eagleton and Slavoj Zizek. And I'm like, that is pretty a weird thing to think. Like, yeah, and, and the the reviews you see of the conference really do focus on the performative aspects of it. They love to sort of comment minutely on Zizek's sort of kind of overbearing, outwardly directed energy. They love to comment on the sort of overall spectacleness of the whole event. Um, I think I think it's a little bit of uh, you know mainstream news doesn't know what to do with this in a certain way what category to slot it in so they end up sort of doing a kind of aesthetic aestheticized description of it but apparently this is Zizek at his frenetic best and um, the other conference members said they didn't mind his overbearingness because of the sort of energy that it was bringing to the table. In any case, I'll just quote from the intro one last time. This is the their version of the purpose, the thesis of the conference. Quote, the key question addressed is whether communism is still the name to be used to designate radical emancipatory projects. The conference participants, although coming from different perspectives and projects, shared the thesis that one should remain faithful to the name communism. End quote faithful to the name i guess since we're since we're reading uh one of bad use entries into this whole thing he, he kind of says right at the beginning not of this article but in his foreword to the program of the conference he says the communist hypothesis remains the good one i don't see any other if we have to abandon this hypothesis then it is no longer worth doing anything at all in the field of collective action without the horizon of communism Without this idea, there is nothing in the historical and political becoming of any interest to a philosopher. Let everyone bother about their own affairs and let us stop talking about it. What is imposed on us is a task, even as a philosophical obligation. 
is to help a new mode of existence of the hypothesis to deploy itself. Okay, so it's a hypothesis, an idea. It's not about actual existing communism. It's about a sort of... A horizon. Yeah, it's about a horizon. It's about working to the realization of the idea, working towards some future point where the idea will be realized. And this event will be kind of a, what will have been in terms of the history of that event. So with that, why don't we just kick off the series? I We have not talked about Bedju, so I just want to give a, a note on him. I don't know why we haven't talked about Bedju because Matt's, Matt's been itching too. Hmm. Um, but if we want to define him cursorily, is cursorily a word? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Anyway, you ready for this? Badu, I wrote, is a Platonist Maoist math realist. <laughs> so if you ever wanted a combination of mathematics, Platonism, and Maoism, I don't know if anyone has ever asked for that, but here's, here's your guy. Yeah. Um, it's a wholly unique con combination, and I know it's bad to use a modifier on the word unique, but it is wholly unique. Um, last time we did bring him up was briefly in the uh, May 68 episode because he was part of this faction of Maoists at Paris 8 who are known for breaking through the ceilings looking for CIA microphones. He, he, he was one of those. Um, but his philosophy is really like nothing else. And Matt, I'm really sorry, but I do not want to get into the math realism here because he doesn't sure. bring it up. And I don't really know anything about set theory. And, uh, but he doesn't bring it up in this talk anyway. So, so thankfully, but he does bring up something that I know the political theorists among us know very well, which is the idea of the good. Mm -hmm. Um, and that communism is the idea of the good, which I don't think is how Plato necessarily meant it. But if we choose to commit to it, to be subject to it, that is what it means to be a philosopher today. Only you are, uh, if you're a communist or if you're a philosopher you are a, you communist, have to be a communist also um and listen i just want to begin by explaining the argument the second half you can offer your challenges i know you're itching to it but let's try to uh figure out how is the horizon of the good in political theory now communism well i, I do think it is important to make one note about his ontology and i agree with you let's put all the math stuff aside right um, because one of the things that he agrees with people like Zizek or Lacan about is this idea that reality has a kind of incompleteness to it. A lot of Western thought has been about trying to describe reality as some kind of totality, right? Uh, which he expresses in a number of different ways. You know, describe it as one, uh, if you want to use the mathematical term. Uh, and his argument is that his interpretation of set theory proves that you can't describe reality in this kind of way. Uh, it's always defined by multiplicities. And the reason why politically this is important uh, is various forms of ideology and the state try to insist that actually we have settled uh, on the right kind of politics and we will become one society by committing ourselves to this kind of political agenda, right? Uh, and then things will more or less roll along the way that they have forever without any substantial changes. Sorry to interrupt, but if you do want to read this article, I'll attach it to, to in Patreon and make it public. So even if you're not interested in becoming a patron, you can still have a look at it. With my highlights, sorry, I accidentally saved it with the highlights, so. I'd also say if uh, people are interested in getting into Badgia, but they don't want to read three volumes of being an event right now, the little book conditions uh, is about 
300 pages or so, and it summarizes his entire position. It's a very short little introduction written by him that kind of gives you all the, the basics. Right. So where do we begin? I mean, the the idea of communism is important because what we seem to have is capitalism, which offers, which itself claims to be the only way forward. There's no alternatives. And yet in the history of capitalism, we've seen these enormous gulfs of inequality arise, the concentration of wealth. I mean, the, the pretense of this conference is, you know, here's again, another quote from the intro, the, the 2008 bailout of the banks to the tune of over a trillion dollars socialized the losses of neoliberal casino capitalism. So it took the gambling with our economy that has happened in neoliberal casino capitalism, which I interpret as, you know, what emerged with you know Reagan and Thatcher and and the neoliberals of the 70s and 80s the sort of neoliberal which also implies deregulation and cutting social safety nets and the, the apparently the socialization of risks right where we get a situation with the common phrase you know socialism for the banks or socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor and everybody else so there's a certain idea here, the idea of communism that can repair the sort of fractured solidarity of the human race, right? We've become fractured, we've become uncaring, and neoliberalism pose, imposes a kind of cynicism on us. And that's part of the reason why, you know, communism is an, the only philosophically interesting idea, because if you don't take it seriously, then you just kind of given to the status quo neoliberalism and you become subordinated to the state and the sort of compulsory cynicism that comes along with that which is to say you know it's poor people's fault they're poor africa is a backward place like you know those sorts of thinking that we still commonly encounter even in 2022 which is that the world if it's not with us then it's completely backwards and fucked up and it's their own fault in a way despite you know, we know about the histories of capitalism and colonialism and imperialism, and yet still it's somehow the subject, the subject's fault that they are in their state of destitution. So, I mean, what do we do? We look to the idea of communism, not actually existing communism, but the hypothesis of communism as a unifying idea. We'll all have different ideas of it individually. But it's something that we can kind of through which we can join into a collective movement. And do you think that this this idea of communism, like it sounds kind of like it's playing a role, I mean, of a kind of like universal good, which is kind of interesting because it seems to me that like often these theorists want to like resist being committed to an idea of a universal good. But it kind of seems like they're that's what this is doing. So like. Well, we'd have to get into his actual definition of idea because it's a very yeah. Well, from idea, yeah, it's a very idiosyncratic. I mean, in general, in the in the in the volume, like I, so I was actually looking quickly at the introduction as well, which I think it's kind of worth mentioning. Like at the like, it's just like four pages uh, introduction by the two editors, and I think they say you know they have like four points to kind of say. Um, you know, without any particular, the shared premises that brought most people together. So it doesn't include all of them, right? And there's like four things. And uh, this is actually pretty important to get into before we even 
touch on his thing about idea because um, he does think that there is a universalistic dimension uh, to this, but in a very particular way that flows from his ontology. And it's related back to this idea of an event, right? When you see a rupture in the order of, let's just call it political being, right? Uh, there is the opportunity to engage in the possibility of creating new possibilities, right? Uh, but then, and this is an idea he gets from Kierkegaard and St. Paul. He wrote a pretty an interesting book on St. Paul, actually, where he says you have a choice then. Uh, you can either choose to show fidelity to this rupture in the order of, fidelity, uh, of uh, political being and try to create something new, kind of faith, right? Uh, or you can choose to not show fidelity to that uh, and to commit yourself to upholding the status quo ideology, whatever it happens to be. But he does think it's an existential choice, right? And other people will decide to make the other one and say, no, I'm sticking with what I have right now. In summary, everybody has a choice to either accept or reject communism. And there's not a middle ground, just like you have a choice to accept, be complicit with or reject capitalism. No. Um, so the idea and, you know, itself represents it's so there's three parts to the idea. This is getting into his little definition thing. Um, it is historical in that it keeps appearing, and he brings up examples of it appearing. The idea, which is the French Revolution, the People's War in China, the Russian Revolution, they're all aimed at a political truth, which is emancipation. However, that doesn't exhaust the idea, because the idea is not just history. The idea is also a truth procedure. And unlike many of his compatriots, he's very committed, or as Matt said, he has a fidelity to the idea of truth. And the point is, unlike, and I think you could say unlike uh, unlike other Marxists as well, yeah. history is not the source of this. So communism is this horizon, and it demands that you make a decision. Um, mm -hmm. And when you make a decision, then you become a subject. And you become a subject of a political truth, whether that's capitalism, whether that's communism. So there's no bench sitters, I think is a good way to say it for, for Badiou. You either, you either affirm reality as it is, or you affirm reality as it is not. Communism is not reality. It's impossible. And because it's impossible, then it's possible. One of the things that he argues that's related to Marx is that with Hegel, maybe with Kant, he sometimes flirts with both of them, you saw this transition to the idea that history uh, and aesthetics is where meaning can be found. And he says, you know, you see the people who lean towards aesthetics with people like Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, people who lean towards history with Hegel, Marx, all of them, right? Uh, and he says that both of them are wrong, right? We need to go back to a platonic conception of truth uh, that's more ancient and more correct. Uh, but he doesn't want to abandon all the achievements of Marxist materialism uh, and historicism. He just wants to reconfigure it in the way that he's thinking of it. Did you see where he said in here, um, you cannot believe in Hegel unless you do it like my friend Zizek. Yeah. You, need a, you <laughs> must he, have a new Hegel. You can't repeat Hegel, though, because his idea is like emergent in history. Exactly. And I mean, they've had a really productive dialogue on this point, and there's no doubt that Bedge's influence kind of pushed Zizek in the way of creating his kind of negative uh, scatological uh, Hegel. Uh, but, you know, you can think about this kind of classical Marxist narrative that you'd find in somebody like Althusser, who was also a big influence where it says, where you'd say, you know, we have our science of history. It proves that communism is coming. Communism is the answer to the riddle of history, to use the Marxist phrase, right? Uh, so just commit yourself to that uh, and everything is going to become better. Uh, but you staunchly rejects that. Right? Uh, where he says that we need to understand history symbolically, 
right? Uh, and one of the ways to do this is with this idea of proper names, uh, which designate. Matt, you're, too, you're term dropping too fast. Sorry. I mean, we need to understand history uh, as the. Um, not something that's set in any given direction and needs to be understood symbolically, right? History and the meaning we find in history comes from us. Um, and then he leans into his Lacanianism to try to explain that. So we can get into that later. Sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, we can keep doing passes because, you know, the idea of communism for Bedia has these three basic elements, as we mentioned. There's a political dimension, a historical dimension, and a subjective dimension. And I just mentioned right off the bat that subjective does not imply individual. No, no. Subjective doesn't mean an individual, although an individual can make themselves a subject. That is, they can subjectivate, which is basically, again, his line here is to to decide. To You can decide to become part of a political truth procedure, right? And a political truth procedure is, is simply a kind of practice, right? Truth emerges from practice. And practice is, is a concrete practice, time-specific sequence, right? So he brings up, you know, the French Revolution, the People's War of Liberation in China, and some other examples. Now, these, these are political, and they are empirical. They're kinds of records of, of what he call truth procedures. And they relate to history... Because history, again, is, is a kind of universal thing, right? It's not simply, you know, history. We, we commonly say, you know, history is what was written down. That's why we have the word prehistory before writing was invented. But in this case, history is the general becoming of humanity. It's our collective history as human beings, which are punctuated by these political situations. And we have to grasp these truth procedures in their proper places in history, which is the symbolic, and we decide to become a part of them in a certain sense, right? So joining the collective body of truth in a certain way is to decide, and to decide in that way is to become a subject. And to reject is to withdraw, is, is not to enter into it, to, but to withdraw into your own private selfhood, as opposed to becoming a kind of collective subject. So those three elements keep kind of circulating and reappearing throughout his argument, ideas, the totalization of these three basic elements, truth procedure, belonging to history, and individual subjectivation, which is again to become part of a broader body of truth. And the collective subject you could, I mean, you can't conflate it with, but one of the, the names of the collective subject is Marx's working class. But for Bedou, communism is more like a humanity project. So you can choose to identify with the goals of humanity or you choose not to. And I thought it was really interesting when he says we have these communist heroes, but the communist heroes are only guises of the idea. So he names like all the way back to Spartacus, uh, Lenin, Rosa Luxemburg, Che Guevara. And he said the only reason that we have individual heroes is because you need like a body to identify with to subjectivate yourself with but the only reason that these are heroes is because they are like a guise of the idea which is supposed to represent everybody like a free a free humanity by their writings or what they did or whatever it is so there's no it's anti-individualist in that sense well that's also where i start to get a little bit 
wary of what uh, he argues because uh, he wrote a truly terrible, he had a truly terrible interview about his Maoism, uh, where when people pointed out to him that Mao might have killed a few people uh, in his time, just a few, he said, well, that's just exaggerated, Western propaganda. Surely it wasn't 60 million. It could have been more than a few million. And I'm like, really? You know, that that's your creme uh, de la creme argument. It wasn't tens of millions. It was millions at most. Come on, dude. But and anyway, I do think that his theory of history, though, has a lot going for it. Uh, I prefer the Beji or the Zizekian kind of reformulation of it, maybe because I'm a bit of a Hegelian at heart. But I mean, this idea that being is multiplicity, that every kind of human society has tried to ignore that by establishing a faux totality, instantiating it within that political system. And inevitably, there's a rupture uh, that you can choose to show fidelity to uh, or not and become the subject uh, of the possibility of possibilities. Uh, by joining with you know, other people, I think it's quite an inspiring. Uh, and I do think that he is right that if we're going to reconceptualize something like Marx's materialism, uh, it needs to be understood on these lines, because I just don't think anybody's going to buy into a teleological vision uh, of materialist history anymore. It's just not going to happen, right? Right. And I, I think he kind of gets around the claims that, you know, there were horrors under Stalinism, there were horrors under Maoism. Precisely by saying, you know, communism isn't just a political name. It can't be a purely political name because, you know, what what happened happened in those situations. But the idea of communism kind of persists. And even even though today we have kind of no actually existing communism, except maybe China, which has mixed itself in with capitalist ideas in obvious ways. So, but but with the disappearance of actually existing communism, what is left? We have global capitalism. So is that the only way to go then? And the answer has to be no for this idea to succeed. And I think it's important that he does, I, I mean, I, this is probably a strategy, but it's saying, I, I, I haven't heard the reference that Matt's making, but he does refer here to like uh, Stalin's terror and saying the yeah. terror of Stalin does not exhaust the idea because the idea has to be outside what any so-called political communist ever did, which is, you know, strategically good because they do bad stuff. But it's true that uh, there's there's no alternative to capitalism except for like this, if you if you buy this uh, thesis. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm only to say that he's OK on that. I mean, if we're going to forgive liberalism for all the horrors that it's committed, uh, or at least say that there's something left to the label, then he's entitled to make a similar kind of claim, right? Uh, what I think would make me more convinced by some of his arguments uh, is Badger shares this kind of continental, and Victor, maybe you'll sympathize with this, uh, wariness of engaging in what he calls political theory, uh, or what he calls regression to political theory, saying, this is what we should do. These are the kind of institutions we should have. These are the kind of movements we should be guild, because uh, he's very committed to this historical idea that the event uh, will reveal the kind of falsity of the established order, and you can choose to show fidelity to it and emancipate yourself or not, right? Uh, it's this very argument that operates at this very ontological level. Uh, and it's very hard for me not at points to think that it would be helpful uh, to have at least a few programs available about what it is that we're going to replace uh, the political order of being with when the time comes. He kind of says this. So I was going to bring up this quote uh, from uh, at the end of page eight to nine. He, he starts talking about uh, 
He's like, it's incumbent upon uh, upon the communist idea to respond to the question, where do just ideas come from the way Mao did just ideas? And by this, I mean, what constitutes the path of a truth in a situation comes from practice. Practice should obviously be understood as the materialist name of the real. It would thus be appropriate to say that the idea that symbolizes the becoming in truth of just political ideas in history, that is to say, the idea of communism, therefore comes itself from the idea of practice, from the experience of the real, in the final analysis, but nevertheless cannot be reduced to it. This is because it is the protocol not of the existence, but rather of the exposure of a truth in action. So, I mean, that sounds pretty convoluted to me, but it sounds like he's saying like that, you know, you can't like talk in advance, I guess, based on what you were saying, Matt, like, you know, what is going to be, what specific procedures are going to be that it sounds like he's saying you have to like, it's an articulating pr a principle you have to put into practice, unless I'm misreading that. But no, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he shares with Marx. Uh, and that's why he likes the event, right? It's like you have to actually bring these things into into be being like through practice and, and seeing what happens, I guess. E exactly right. He shares with Marx. And I think this is one of the more noxious element, uh, influences of Marxism. Awareness about writing what he calls, you know, what Marx called, you know, uh, cookbooks for the cook shops of the future or recipe books for the cook shops of the future. Right. That's not our job. Uh, you know, we should be operating at the level of historical ontology. What the hell is a cook shop? Well, it's Marx's, the translation of Marx's phrase. I don't know. Uh, a restaurant? <laughs> a restaurant, yeah, I guess. Or a An idea <laughs> mill. <laughs> An idea mill, yeah. And, you know, I have enough respect for political theory. Uh, and also, I've engaged in enough kind of uh, practical level politics to say, no, sometimes it is good to have an advance, a program. Uh, it doesn't need to be worked out in all of its details. And obviously, praxis is going to transform things. Uh, but I think this is also useful because when it comes to giving people a vision for the future that is concrete enough that they can invest their hopes in it, uh, but utopian enough that they think it'd be better than what's going on. Uh, that's kind I mean, of virtuous mean. In my opinion, like I, like the, I, I feel that one of the problems with leftist activism today is precisely that it's, that it's, it's, it's motivated by very vague, vague, sorry, abstract yeah. oh, ideas. So like when we saw Occupy happen, it's like, Ooh, we have this articulating principle of like Occupy and it's like, we'll figure out it in practice. And guess what? Because they didn't have any of that shit figured out. Nothing happened because they had nothing. And it's yeah. like, it's, it's just like, so to me, this is, I don't know, like, it, like it risks, like, you know, and I will admit, I, you know, it's, it's a bit of a difficult essay and I don't know Badu's work in the past. So like, I could just be misreading him, but like, based on what I read here, it kind of does seem like this is, you know, uh, a, a version of saying like, oh, don't worry about like having specific, you know, demand specific, just it's an articulating principle that like, you know, motivates us to be creative and could see what happens next. And I guess every time I've seen that, put into practice where the practice is supposed to, I guess, spontaneously create like the just situation. It just becomes, it just kind of fizzles. So I don't know. Sorry. Are you, wait, are you saying Victor, like it's too vague that, um, this is the, uh, it's basically emancipation, collective emancipation from the capitalist state. That's kind of a too vague for you. Yeah, because like because yeah, there's no plan on like what's going to come next. What's the transition going to be? What institutions do you want to fight for? What do you want to keep? What do you want to get rid of? Like, why does one thing work? How is that? How are we going to like incentivize certain things? Like, like there needs to there's serious questions that need to be like thought about. And if you you need to fight and also like, how are you what are you going to fight for to put the move like leftist movement in a better position to fight for even more? Because not like I think incrementalism is like the only way to go. But at the same time, like. We need to think about like what what can we fight for that's then going to put us in a stronger position to like fight for more. And I think like a good example of something would be like 
a basic income is like not going to yeah. be the end point, but it's like fighting for a basic income would then would then enable like working class people to be in a stronger position to be like, well, fuck you. This job is exploiting me. I don't need this shit. It's going to make activism stronger because it frees like every step that can free the movement uh, will put us in a stronger position to ask for even more later. I, and I just feel yeah, like instead, and instead it just feels like, well, look, we just want emancipation now. And it's like, okay, but what does that even mean? Like, I do feel like, like with really this good... thing, the event, it kind of feels what you're saying is like an all or nothing. There's not, yeah. there's not a reformism in there. It's you're committed to the event. The event is unpredictable. We don't know when it'll happen, but us academic philosophers in, in institutions just have to wait for it to happen and we'll know it when we see it. Yeah, and exactly. It seems a, I agree. I have I share the sentiment that it seems a little bit ab abstract, but now the way you just said it there almost makes it seem pseudo religious too. It's like oh, well, it, we don't know when it's going to happen. It's just going to happen, and then it we'll is. see, and then the it, Messiah it, is going to come. Wrote, and it'll be just, like, you wrote a book on Saint Paul. It's not even accidentally religious. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's not just pseudo religious. That's what I'm saying. He expressly <laughs> compares the event to something like a miracle. Oh my god! I mean, he's okay. French, right? I mean, he can yeah. endlessly romanticizes May '68 and talks about it as like a heroic, miraculous time when you know everything almost always went well, right? But I mean, Zizek has a really good criticism of Bedja along those lines. That's really nicely summarized by his criticism of Occupy. Because Zizek said, you know, I went around Occupy Wall Street uh, and I continuously asked them, okay, mm -hmm. what do you want? Yeah, yeah, Very I straightforward question. And they were just like, we want money to work for people, not the other way around. Or we want freedom <laughs> and equality now. And he said, you know, my God, you know, that means nothing, right? You know? Uh, and you do kind of get a similar vibe reading Bedgia's work, which is why I need you think think you need political theory and political programs, because again you sit there and you're like, okay, so I'll just wait for this miraculous event to occur, uh, show fidelity to it when it appears, and then I suppose emancipation will come. It's very very vague. Uh, I mean, well, no, I this is this is not a good criticism because Bedgia gives plenty of examples. You like first you look to history; those are your examples. And then you have a truth procedure. So his criticism of Occupy would have been the same thing, that they did not have a truth procedure, and that's why they couldn't do anything. I think Badu yeah, would yeah, say if they, had, if they had a philosophical idea, then they would have known what to do. No, I, I don't think so at all. I mean, he's very express about the fact that you can't know in advance uh, what kinds of emancipation that you're going to be committed to. Uh, because it's precisely the fact that you're disrupting the established order of political being that opens up the possibility of possibilities to come. And if you establish that in advance uh, by saying this is what we're trying to achieve, you're already precluding the contingency uh, and the creative kind of energies that are supposed to. be. Yeah, but then you don't have an idea of communism. Well, uh, no, I would say that. I mean, they did. They had an idea that they wanted the possibility of possi new possibilities. Yeah, but to you're be you're only saying the event over and over again. He defines specifically the idea of communism as subjective subjectivation, history, and truth procedure. Yeah, it's subjectivation that occurs when the event appears, and then you choose to show fidelity to it, and that's when you become a kind of political agent that's engaged in social transformation. And all I'm saying is that in these kind of circumstances, that really tells us nothing about the content of what it is that we're going to be committed to when the open the event opens up the new spaces of political possibilities. And that's what I think we desperately need. We need a more concrete vision of our political future that people can aspire to while thinking it's realistic enough that it could plausibly be obtained. I mean, my God, I just finished reading a book by Thomas Piketty, who Bajou probably hates. Oh, yeah. I listened to an interview with him. Equality, where he lists off 
these are the 10 things that we should do. Here's how we could achieve them within the next five to 10 years. None of this is unrealistic. Here's five or six different instances where we've done exactly these things in the past. Yeah, here's how we can pay for it. Here's like how much it'll cost. Like, here's why, like he he is actually arguing for like an inheritance system where like, is it increments of every couple of years or something or? It's 120,000 euros uh, upon hitting the edge, I think of 25 or so. It's actually pretty generous. Everyone would get 120 grand at the, when they hit 25. (laughs) Yeah, and he says, you take these all together, we'd have a democratic, ecological, multicultural socialism. And I can sit there and pick up that book and say, this is an agenda. Uh, It's vague enough that it can be applied in different ways, uh, but it's concrete enough and it has enough examples that anytime someone sits there and says, you're just pie in the sky leftist, we can say, no, here's where this has been done before successfully, right? And to me, you can actually give a roadmap to like progressive legislators of like what kind of laws to pass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me. So, sorry, sorry. I must interrupt here. I have to assert again what we are talking about because you think you're for a critique here, but it's just your own predilections. Yeah, because I mean, to me, the- no, 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 you, no, no, no. You're saying what you want a philosopher to be, but that is not what Badiou believes a philosopher is. A philosopher is not a political theorist. And it sounds like you have read at least as much Badiou as I have, so you'll know that for Badiou, a philosopher has one job, only one, and it is not public policy. It is laying out truth procedures. And our listeners who are familiar with Deleuze will know he also said, philosophers have only one job, qua philosopher, and that is to create concepts. And these are not unrelated, but I'm not going to derail the discussion that way. But anyway, Badiou is not going to give public policy advice, because that is not what philosophers do. Philosophers lay out truth procedures in aesthetics, in science, in politics, without ever doing art, science, or politics. But the argument made here is ultimately about the real itself. And if you want to do Thomas Piketty, then go do Thomas Piketty instead. But he just say, well, that isn't philosophy anymore. That's something else. Not like you wouldn't like it, he just, that's not his, his, his vision or task of what philosophy is for. Yeah. I mean, to me, theoretically, the book is far less interesting and far less profound than Bajir. There's no doubt about it. There's no theory of history. There's no materialism. That's all the stuff that you need. But in terms of rallying people around a cause, the way somebody like Bernie Sanders or AOC uh, or, you know, Mitterrand did back in France, this would be a much, much more useful book. Tell me how you're saying more than... I would do philosophy differently if it were up to me. I think part of the reason is that he does think that political theory is a kind of debased form of philosophy. Uh, and there are a bunch of different reasons for this. One of the reasons is, again, going back to Marx, uh, the problem with political theory is that it doesn't operate at the level of ontology, right? Yeah, um, truth. Which, you know, is a criticism that you could say goes all the way back to Plato. Um, because, you know, ontology is the kind of privileged philosophical discipline, you know. Since, you know, it just is positing normative truth from the seemingly abstract, ahistorical point, uh, he thinks that it's fundamentally problematic uh, and it just tends to reaffirm various ideological presuppositions that people already have. Uh, And I do think that there is some validity to that criticism. Uh, If you're going to be a political theorist, it's absolutely incumbent upon you to link your political theory to a materialist account of how the world is right now in a theory of power. Was that was uh, that just like Academy Award Oscar music to like stop talking? That's what it sounded like for a second. <laughs> no, that was just my phone <laughs> ringing and I have no... Oh, I think I might have been the vet. Um, you know, I, but I just think also that 
this idea that we need to operate primarily at an ontological level uh, and that that's more important than engaging in political theorizing when discussing something like the idea of communism is just a bad one uh, and has never led Marxism or led uh, the communist movement to anything that's been particularly useful. And I think we'd be far better off by. Yeah, but who's we? Because he is, again, doing philosophy, not. Well, I'm talking about his more general work, right? And again. Yeah, but his general work is philosophical yeah, in... and someone else can do the rest <laughs> of the yeah, stuff. Yeah, I know. But again, if you look at the article, right, what it talks about is a very interesting theory of history. Uh, and I think it's broadly right about things. Uh, and he does talk about the need to engage in a new theorizing about possibilities for our political horizons, right? Uh, I'm talking about elsewhere where he describes the effort to instantiate or describe what this future is going to look like in any concrete detail uh, as a kind of futile exercise because it entails politically theorizing about a future, which is not what we should be doing because the order of being sets uh, what kind of things that we're going to have to show faith to our, towards in the future when these events occur, right? And you can take that or leave it if you want. I think we've all agreed that some of this stuff is a little bit mystical. Uh, and I also just think that it's not very useful, right? Uh, I don't think that there's any reason why we can't theorize about what a possible socialist future is going to look like and to try to map that out in considerable detail. And I think if we want these events to come about, that's actually something that we should be trying to do by inspiring people to think that the future can look better than the past. Well, that's all uh, pretty heavy critique there. I mean, well, I would say, I would say, you know, when we tend to discuss these things like the Occupy movement, we immediately tend to look at what were the internal failures and we immediately background everything that they're struggling against. I mean, there's a huge asymmetry of power going on against any of these movements, whether it's Occupy, whether it's even just conferences like this. I mean, the state of being, the state of things now is neoliberal <coughs> capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that's always, we always have to keep that in mind and not background it and let it disappear, right? The like Occupy movement didn't fail because of some kind of internal failure, planning, procedural issue. It failed because it's it's going against the state. And the state is by definition far more powerful than anything that can happen within the state. And when these people come together out of their individual histories, which he says individual history is confined within the state, when they come together into a kind of event like this, there's an eruption, there's an emergence out of the ordinary process of state history into the universal history of the development of humankind. And which is why today, you know, Occupy is again, one of those symbols that's full of meaning, not one of these empty symbols, like, you know, it was bound to fail. It's one of these symbols that can give inspiration to later movements. And it becomes one of these reference points of the idea of communism as it moves forward. Because again, you can't reduce it to any single thing like that, as we were saying. So, I mean, it's it's easy to sort of take the, I guess, you, I guess, you know, the, the corporate media line, which is what generally mediates these events to us, we'll try to explain it as internal failures. I don't think you that's. Know, a, I don't. I, I disagree that I that's a corporate. That's, I don't think that's a corporate media view. Like, like I. Th and in fact, I would say in academia, what you're talking about is very foregrounded. I would say like my critique is actually that like, I think that these like internal like the lack of a plan is actually very backgrounded. When you're when you're in most like you know leftist yeah. circles, they want a foreground. Well, it's a symbolic thing that like helps articulate the principle further, and like no one wants to talk about 
the fact that like maybe it could have been done better. And like, you know, there's a great book by Zainab Tufekci, who's a like a, a Turkish scholar activist. And she wrote this book, Twitter and Tear Gas. And she she's a leftist and activist like she was at Syriza. She was like, you know, uh, on the ground activist for many years. And she was there and, and wrote extensively about the failures of Occupy, yeah. the internal failings of it, like and critiques it and says that like a lot of this has to do with um kind of like leaning too heavily on technologies that were like, we'll meet here, we'll do this. But there's no on the ground like 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 building an infrastructure, which is like what activist movements before the Internet had to do. Right. They had to go on the ground, knock on doors, build like capacity, build, you know, pressure on elected officials, like have a plan for how to like push for things like like the civil rights movement. So, yes, like I, I, I'm not so I don't want to say that it's like valueless. Right. Like I think it was an important gesture. But at the same time, like it can't that can't be its only purpose. It can't just be like this thing that, oh, my God, it was such a nice gesture that, that we can use. It's like, no, no, like it could have been better. And like that could have been better is an important thing, I think, to, to, to keep in mind. Yeah, that reflection I mean, I comes take, after the event. I want to take Eric's side on this because we can't just isolate <clears throat> Occupy from like 100 years <clears throat> of, of capitalist state consolidating power. You can't you can't expect that's so, defe- that's so defeatist, though. Like like that attitude no, that's is so realist. realist. It's what it's the state. Yeah, totally. Like it is the state, and it, the state as with with having a lot of time, huge efforts of domestic policy of organizing state power overseas and at home to maintain a specific status quo, the creation of the FBI and the CIA in large part were to deal with any disruption to the status quo, particularly by the left, and we're talking about a century of overthrowing governments without without remorse. Europe, Latin America, Southeast Asia, and not to mention that even, even the conciliatory policies of the American government to give people anything at all were done out of necessity to prevent them from moving any further left. Like, you got your minimum wage. What the fuck else do you want? So pointing out that Occupy Wall Street didn't lead to any policy reforms, so it's its fault, is just forgetting the massive single-minded apparatus that built world history this century. That's not defeatist in the slightest. It's just like... What would you expect on your on your first you outing? You can use bro? the state against itself if you like. If you there, there are ways. I think like like history also shows like a lot of a lot of legislation passing, a lot of things changing if done properly. And I think like having a plan for something like a like a like demanding a basic income or like what this Thomas Piketty guy like is talking about. Like I think there's ways of actually like. Um, you know, organizing for things that are tangible that would then that would then put the leftist movements in a better position. And this like refusal and this like always using this. Oh, my God, the state's so powerful. We can't do anything as like an excuse. So then we're only going to fight for like these big abstract principles. Like, I think it's a real problem to just be like going after the big ideas and not being like, well, what can we do within the conditions that we're in rather than being like, OK, we're going to try for the full emancipation and then we're just going to blame the state being so powerful and then so it's impossible no, that's, to do anything. I wasn't rather blaming than, the state for being powerful. I'm saying that this the symbol of resistance is valuable when it's an ant fighting against Goliath. It's not David and Goliath, well, okay. it's an ant Goliath. But you could even say that the the Bernie swell of support was a result of that of the Occupy, which would be a success towards the idea of communism. And there there are still potentialities that uh, that 
are still unrealized there. First off, I would say that I think that Bernie Sanders' success owed in no small part uh, to the fact that he put forward a political program that people were attracted to. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a reason why Fox News voters, or sorry, Fox News viewers applauded when he talked about universal health care for all. Mm -hmm. It was just legitimately an attractive proposal. But I mean, one of my objections to Bedja is a nice concrete one, which is that the most successful communist party in the world right now uh, bar none, right? Uh, we're not talking about the Chinese here. It's the Communist Party uh, in the Indian state of Kerala, which has been elected by voters consistently year after year after year after year, uh, and is more or less the hegemonic party uh, for millions of people. Uh, and the reason why they're successful is they advance policies, leftist policies that people really liked in the state. A very good example of this is they wanted to send more girls to school. Uh, and previous parties had just tried to pay parents saying, don't send your girls to work in the factories, that's exploitative, take this money instead. And the parents took the money and sent their girls to the factories anyway, because there's no way of enforcing that. So the Chinese Communist Party, good materialists that they are, said, we need to actually try to offer tangible benefits to these girls to go to school. So let's just offer a free lunch for everyone uh, who goes to school. And the parents sent their kids to school and girl female literacy shot up in the province by exponential degrees. You know, that's an example of a communist party coming to power, using the state to advance policies that make people's lives materially better and gaining legitimacy over the long run through instituting these kinds of reforms. Now, I'm not saying they're perfect. They have problems, et cetera, et cetera. But the failure to actually take seriously these very concrete issues that actually make people buy into your political program and offering an alternative that people can realistically say, this will make my life tangibly better is a failure of the imagination. And frankly, I don't think it's particularly Marxist, since if we are going to be good Marxists, we should very much be concerned with the material conditions of people and how to improve them. Well, I think you're also, you're also articulating the CIA why they they're not worried about the French left. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, like like right? they're like that that you know the, their their report they're like yeah yeah French intellectuals are are, are no threat. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, compare something like this idea and Bajia. Like one day there's going to be a miraculous event and we can't tell what it's going to be like in advance. And I can't tell you what the institutions are going to look like when we do it, but you will show fidelity to it because that's the right thing to do, right? Uh, it sounds kind of mystical, right? And if I were a CIA agent, I would sit there and be like, yeah, he can go found his little church and nothing is going to come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this and by the way, we're referencing uh, Plastic Pill's video there, uh, Radical Theory and the CIA. It's a great video where he goes yeah. through us a, a report where the CIA considered the threat of fr French intellectuals um, and all and, and initial and basically they concluded that uh, this is way better than uh, the old Communist Party that was organizing because they're they're disjointed and they have these hyper abstract ideas and it's never going to lead to anything tangible. So yeah. let's great. Let's let them keep doing their little French theory. This is just a criticism of his kind of political inclinations. Uh, I tend to agree, like I said, with his philosophy of history. I think that's really good. His criticisms of Hegel. Uh, and I also tend to actually like uh, his approach to post-structuralism as well. So it's not like I'm anti Bedja. I think he does done a lot of good things. But I mean, again, we've we've come back, OK, from the revolutionary position where we need to abolish the state to the reform position where we use the state to structure change gradually to make things better for people. And so we've diffused the entire thrust of this article in the whole book. Well, okay, I, don't, I don't agree. That's I don't agree. What One article in. And second of all, we know if we've been paying attention to Marxist historical analysis in our educations, we know that people tend to vote against their own interests because the offerings of political parties are always couched in all sorts of rhetoric 
and there's all sorts of campaigning and media machines and advertisement deals involved. And with the right kind of persuasion, you can get people to vote against their own needs, right? So you can't really just say that, oh, well, this political party in India is succeeding because they're doing this right. Well, what about, you know, the election of Trump, the recent election of another conservative party in Ontario? I think we can clearly say, if we have our heads screwed on straight, that that was against the interests of the working class. And yet it was still presented in a way that made it more appealing than all of the other options. So I don't think there's a one-to-one -one relationship between, you know, presenting a policy that will improve the working class's conditions and the majority of voters involved in those no. situations actually voting for the party uh, offering on, but, those uh, platforms. I, I, I it's mean, stupid. Clearly, it's I just want to say that I, I, I reject the dichotomy between reformism versus revolutionary. Like, I think maybe listeners will be surprised to hear me say that I'm actually very pro-revolution. But the problem is my argument is that you need to create the material conditions to make actual revolution possible. And I think that requires fighting for things that puts the working class in a stronger position to be able to do that right now. Like the risk is too high. Like, like you, you there's, there's, we don't have the material conditions necessary to actually like create meaningful revolutions. So to me, like it's a, it's a false dichotomy. Like, like you, you can't reject one and accept the other one. If you're if you're a true leftist, you have to understand, like, I think that they they feed into each other. Like one yeah. is a condition of the possibility for the other. I would absolutely agree with that. And I mean, if you look at most successful leftist movements that are still considered widely legitimate, uh, in many instances, the kind of reforms carried out by socialist parties uh, or social democratic parties uh, in Western Europe and in the Nordic countries weren't actually uh, catalysts for the working class kind of disassembling and saying, we've won all the victories that we want right now. Uh, they're catalysts for pursuing more ambitious programs uh, over a long period of time. The Nordic example is a really good one. I don't want to get the, like We're getting so far off the topic of this book. And if this series continues to go like this, Beju is a philosopher, right? Beju is not an economist. He's not Thomas Piketty. Yeah. He's trying to justify why the idea of communism is correct, not the best way to go. So if you want him to be a political theorist, you're going to be disappointed because he's not. He's not a political scientist. He's a philosopher. He's establishing the conditions for revolution philosophically, which is a different project from everything that you're criticizing him for. Sure. But I mean, it is fundamentally related. And I mean, this is one of the things that we're getting into because it's not that he just said, I am not all those things. Uh, and so somebody else is going to have to do that. It's that he's often suggested that these are not the kind of things that we should be focusing on uh, as leftist intellectuals. Yeah, well, right. Uh, and that is a more substantial issue. And I mean, just to Eric's point, right, I don't think either Victor or I are saying all you need to do is come up with the right program and yeah. everything's going to go together. There are a lot of different contingent circumstances. You know, I worked on the NDP campaign right now. I happen to think our program was pretty good, but we had I can say this now. A shit leader, just a terrible, terrible leader, right? Uh, who had about the charisma of a box. And if we'd had a different leader who had had a little bit more charisma and had a little bit more of an attachment with voters, maybe things could have been different. You know, uh, Doug Ford, say whatever you will about him, has a bit of charisma. And yeah. so I just, I just want to say though, like I think, you know, to bring it back to to the article, like I like I think what we're discussing here though is like what is the connection between ideas and change or ideas and action, right? So like. You know, I, I, I like I think like I, it's related. Right. Like I think uh, and I just don't think that like bad news, like I mean, as far as I understand it, I, I don't find like his 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 account. And I thought you kind of agreed with my critique earlier pills like that. It's just overly 
messianic or something or like yeah. overly religious and it's like you know and, and, and i think like the reason why i don't like it is because it just makes that connection between the idea of communism and action it just makes it overly mythological and or overly uh i don't know like mystical for me that like it doesn't seem like it's going to be have a meaningful contribution now as a philosophical idea it's interesting it's you know it's um but but uh, you know but i thought we were kind of talking about like but but then that that connection between like ideas and action but his objection yeah. okay we were talking about something different before the messianic thing and i'm talking philosophically there but when we talk specifically about um why he's against reformism for example and i think eric kind of pointed out that you're just diffusing the argument by making it only about this party in India or that party elsewhere or this party or here. Or anything that can be done within the context oh, of Oh, you mean state. like actual events that improve people's right, lives where right, we're politically right. successful? Yes, yeah. and everything that happens policies. within the context you of You mean the, the real state. world? Yeah, whether it's those kind of bait and switch exactly. things where it's like, hey, this improves your lives and then two years later it all gets cut out anyway because they've served their purpose, which is to get that party in power, not really to ameliorate the suffering. Such a such a paranoid view of like, that it's like every, yeah. every incremental thing is just there to I cement mean, the power. Like, I, I think that like the realistic, more, but it does. Paranoia is another man's real. No, I mean so, the world okay. is tell significantly that, tell that to, worse. Tell that to the tens of millions of girls in Kerala who now have an education. And this is exactly what I'm talking about when he he says exactly what you're saying, Matt. You can think of the real world, and the real world is, in Lacan's terms, the imaginary and the symbolic. If you only fight in those zones, you will lose. So if you're saying girls in Kerala are going to school. We're that's okay. No, no, but then that's is, like completely is, different think, from yeah, his argument. Wanna, what, what, and I know Matt's not saying that, but that is not a criticism of Badu's argument because he's saying do do whatever else. I don't care about whatever else. That's not my concern so, philosophically. So philosoph my concern is that history has to be broken because history as it exists now is only the history of the state and only the history of capitalism. So, so any reforms, any reforms in there, do whatever you want. They're not going to solve anything. No, but also, I, again, but phil philosophically, the view that I, that I think Matt and I are, are are pushing is is not that like okay, be happy with like reformism. That's the real key. Is actually that like I think what maybe Badio is missing is that like this kind of like these kinds of reforms do actually create possibilities for new possibilities. Like so, it's not like like philosophically, like it creates conditions for the emergence of new events. Like, like, I think that new events are possible as a result of this process of reform. Like, so I don't think that, like, I think that the, often there's like a straw man of like what reformism is, which is that like, okay, we'll have this reform and now girls can go to school in whatever Karachi or wherever he, Matt was well, talking about. And like, now we can be happy. No, it's not yeah. to be happy. It's to make the, the underlying like working class people stronger to then precipitate something new, new possibilities. It's like so, and I think that like this this rejection actually stifles new events and new possibilities from emerging. So I think philosophically, like like the, I think the objection is more philosophical than it's being given credit for. Yeah, and I think it's a, that's absolutely true. And I think there's a reason why it is that he continuously demonstrates this nostalgia for something like Maoism, right? Which was a human catastrophe, uh, and he continuously romanticizes it in a certain way by saying, well, it was a genuine break in the order of being an event of the highest order, uh, while ignoring the fact that millions of people were killed by this event, and nobody, even the Chinese Communist Party, wants to go back to that. 
Contrast that again with something that seems a little bit more boring, like the Communist Party's success in Kerala. By contrast, millions of girls now get to go to school and get a meal and are probably going to live because of the programs that are instituted by this Communist Party, which is a step towards legitimating leftism more broadly in a country with billions of people, right? I would see that as a vastly more concrete step forward for the left uh, than any kind of interview uh, where you sit there and you're saying it wasn't 60 million people that died, it was 10 million people. Uh, we should still remember that Maoism was a break uh, with capitalism that was of world historical significance. My response to that is you need to fucking get out of Paris, go and actually spend some time with these people and ask them what kind of communism they think uh, is actually of more positive world historical significance. Well, just to be conciliatory, but doesn't this all actually line up nicely with what Badiou is saying. We're, we're pointing out all these individual events. And if an event is a rupture in the normal order of bodies and languages as it exists in any particular situation, if that's how he defines an event, and also it's a creation of new possibilities, then an event, whether it's good or bad, it's going to introduce new possibilities if it is truly an event, whether it's those kinds of reformist events like you're talking about or more, you know, like abrupt events like Occupy or the Maoist revolution, right? They introduce new possibilities. And what we have to do is we have to take those specific singular possibilities that emerged in particular circumstances, use our imagination to project those into universal history, which is part of the universal history of humanity. And that's the whole procedure, right? With the three elements put together, the idea is the political singular, the historical universal, and the subjective, which binds it all together into a single body of truth. And that's what we have to do with each of those individual events, good or bad, they're gonna introduce new possibilities. The act afterwards of reflecting on the failures, internal and external, and why it didn't work, what worked about it, all those things contribute to our imaginative abstracting of the things from that event and projecting them into universal history, which is then something we can remain, we can have fidelity to those new possibilities, which were unexpected. The day before those things happened, the day before Occupy, no one even knew that something like that was fucking possible. And then afterwards we're like, wow, like that failed gloriously, but what new possibilities for the future I am now concerned with? Like that to me is the idea. It's a forward thinking, utopian yeah, it has that nice. religious spin because you know a lot of people in this world today are very taken with spiritualism and i think even rhetorically <laughs> yeah. having a that's religious fun. kind of thrust is not the worst thing you can build into your theory even though it's got a specific purpose right he's used saint paul to articulate universalism so he can make it into his idea of history which is universal the universal history of human humanity so, I mean, I don't think all of this is necessarily a shot against it. These could be nicely integrated no, yeah. into what he's saying. I mean, and Matt, Matt, here's a here's a quotation from the article where he says the same thing that you're saying, because you you seem to think that he's really against these girls getting educated <laughs> in Kerala, no. which he's not. <laughs> so in this view of things, That's the fun. most important ordinary action is to take someone to a real political meeting far from home far from their predetermined existential parameters, a.k.a. Paris, um, in a hostel of workers from Mali, for example, or at the gates of a factory. Once they have come to a place where politics is occurring, they will make a decision about whether to incorporate or withdraw. So if you were to ask him, Mr. Badiou, 
do you want these girls in, in Kerala to get educated? He would certainly say yes, because of the possibilities that it produces. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. And I will say, yeah, okay. I, I, so I agree. I and agree with everything. that's the moment of decision you pointed yeah. to. Decide to totally or I, withdraw. I, I agree. I think really like my objection through this thing has, has been more um, like, so I'm glad that's a good conciliatory point that you brought up, Eric. So, so I appreciated that. I think really what I would just say is like, I think uh, like the left is, I think maybe overvalues events like Occupy as like actually presenting something and grossly undervalues kind of like, like reform events for the new possibilities that they create. That's, I guess, well, still agreeing totally with, with, with your, uh, with your conciliatory point. Yeah, I think that it's a good point to end on. And I agree uh, with a lot of what you both said. Now, look, again, I want to point out, I don't hate the guy. In fact, I like a lot of what he's saying. In fact, I, I, I tend to agree with his reinterpretation uh, of the this philosophy This isn't about liking or hating. I just think you're caricaturizing by saying pickety good, bad you bad, no, when no, they're, okay. they're, do, just, they're doing different projects. It's like, yeah, yeah, I did say they're like, doing different things. I just think that sometimes bad you leans a little too heavily uh, on the mysticism, right? Uh, but the sentence that you gave at the end of the essay is a nice instance where he does kind of bring it back down uh, a little bit. Uh, and to kind of Eric's point, one of the points that I agree with Badger on, and that echoes what Eric said, uh, is Badger does tend to say that in instances where you see something that looked like it might have an event and it failed, uh, the best, like Occupy, the best wisdom uh, is the wisdom of Samuel Beckett, who's a big fan of, uh, rightly so, uh, which is, you know, fail, fail again, fail better. Right. Uh, and that's not really all that different than saying, you know, learn from your mistakes. Uh, and I think that if you look at something like Occupy um, or Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, it's just failures. And that's not actually taking anything positive from them. Uh, and I think we should. Right? We should sit there and say, what did they do wrong? What did they do right? And how can we make sure to avoid their mistakes in the future? And we shouldn't even be just looking at those failures like recently that Chris Smalls guy unionized an Amazon warehouse. It's going on in Starbucks. So that's the thing. Maybe we should be focusing on that. I mean, that is more. that is some meaningful organizing right there. Like that yeah. is good stuff. And that and that relieves the immiseration just enough for people to participate more in politics, right? Like exactly. beyond voting exactly. once every cycle. Exactly. There's also a level of involvement that can happen when your, you know, when your life is, has a, a has a measure of security to it that those things are undoubtedly bringing to the people who are being unionized in the Starbucks and the warehouses across the states right now. Hopefully that continues, but that's not that's not the end of the struggle obviously. I don't think anyone would think that it's an end in itself, but it's certainly a step. Yeah, that's why, that's why he calls at the beginning, this is a horizon. And we've <clears> talked <throat> about horizon before in terms of phenomenology, but he uses that as like the like just think about the horizon. It's always the limit. So his focus is always on the limit. And maybe he should be focused more on the steps that it takes to get there. But that's the kind of what his philosophical position is, is look always at the limit. Don't look at what's in front of you. Which you're calling mysticism. I like some mysticism. Sure. I, I just want to say, though, that you're all missing the most important thing that came from Chris Malls' efforts, which is that he gave the single best burn uh, of 2022 uh, to Jeff Bezos, where he pointed out that he'd like to thank him for going to space, because while he was up there roaming around in his rocket ship, they were down there organizing, right? Uh, and if nothing else, that diss alone should secure Chris Malls a permanent place in leftist history. <laughs> yes. Back to space with all of them. Well, that's yeah. a great. That that was a, that's a good. Uh, 
maybe a good point to end on, guys. I don't know. I feel like okay. uh, I feel like this is a good There's start. One... A good start. I think it was a good start to this series. I got a little heated. Sorry. No, that's but... which is good. Badiou gives a summary of his own work. So I'll give this quotation. And if there's any thoughts, we'll finish on that. Let's recapitulate as simply as possible. Thank you, Mr. Badiou. A truth is the political real. History, even as a reservoir of proper names, including Chris Smalls, is a symbolic place. The ideological operation of the idea of communism is the imaginary projection of the political real into the symbolic fiction of history, including its guise as representation of the action of innumerable masses via the one of a proper name, including all the Amazon workers, right? The, the role of this idea is to support the individual's incorporation into the discipline of a truth procedure, to authorize the individual in his or her, eye, her own eyes to go beyond the statist constraints of mere survival by becoming a part of the body of truth. So I think you're very right in terms of we don't know what comes out of girls being educated in Kerala. We don't know what the Amazon workers are going to do with more time on their hands and more... Uh, hope in their hearts but those do open up those sorts of possibilities to go beyond what he calls the statist constraints of history and obviously there's a certain constructivist thrust to this argument in a certain way right because he does say you know truth has a fictional structure the idea exposes truth in a fictional structure and i'm guessing this fictional structure part of the imaginary projection is what sort of needs to be in place to grasp the truth in a certain way. There's a certain mixing of reality and fiction there, which makes it a kind of a kind of constructivism, but a kind of constructivist with realist yearnings. And it's well, good think... to have the part of the fiction is it's good to have heroes. It's good to like uh, elevate these people to prophetic status, even because it gets more people into the body. Yeah, and his account of truth is actually very interesting and it relates back to what you're saying, Eric, because he points out, and this is where he's kind of anti, he's an anti-Platonist <clears throat> Platonist, right? Which is that the history of Western concepts of truth has always been that truth is singular, accounts for the whole, uh, and can describe a kind of totality. Uh, and in fact, the real truth that we need to become aware of uh, is to expose reality as contingent, multiple, uh, and open to various possibilities, right? And I think that's kind of an inspiring way of taking some of the insights of post-structuralism and turning them into a more systematic worldview, something like what Deleuze did. Uh, and I don't know, I just find the guy inspiring at that level. Yeah, that's a nice way because he's trying to sort of take these ideas of universal eternal truth and contingency and kind of put them together in a weird way, right? Because we don't want to be fatalistic or deterministic. We want to stay open to the possibilities in a certain way and and there's and truth doesn't necessarily contradict that although it seems to when we claim you know when we do talk about the truth we talk about the way things are the way things will be but we tend not to include in truth the way things could be and the way things could have been yeah i can't remember where he says it but he says that like um a naked truth displays the vulnerability of being uh was a, a sentence of his, which is very artful and very poetic, uh, which he can be at points when he's not writing really badly. Uh, and I think that there's something really inspiring uh, about the project that he initiated, uh, which was to try to take the insights of post-structuralism 
seriously, um, but not necessarily fall into the skepticism uh, or the nihilism uh, or even the kind of what's the way it, resignation uh, that you found uh, with it. Uh, and for that, you know, he deserves a huge amount of credit um, because whether, even though I don't agree with a lot of what he says, even ontologically, the fact that he opened the door to these kind of inquiries is something that's extremely important and he deserves mad props for doing that. Yeah, and I think you're right about the sort of quasi-mystical, quasi-religious couching of truth and the sort of horizon that this idea points towards. I think there is definitely that. But I mean, I try to suspend my disbelief a little bit, and I try to look at that as part of the fictional structure through which we grasp truth as well. It's a kind of conceptual scaffolding that helps us understand rather than rather than the kind of, you know, hardcore atheist response to that, which should just be, you know, it's all nonsense. I try to suspend that a little bit when I'm reading this, which I think is necessary. Yeah, that's fair. He's like any other systematic thinker, right? You're probably if you read him, you're probably going to find a lot that you don't like and a lot that you do like. You just have to kind of cut to let yourself. You have to let yourself get taken into the system and just like like take it up on its own terms. Otherwise, you're going to you're going to like prevent yourself from from learning if you go in with an overly skeptical attitude, I think. Yeah. And I should say the guy's still alive and active. He's kind of like Habermas and that he just released a huge fucking book recently, which pissed me off because I thought I had read everything important by him. And now I have to go back and read that, which I'm irritated by. Um, but, you know, give him a lot of props. Also well, hey, another another book active. for you to review. Uh. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, I yeah, no one, no one here, just in case it's uh, not clear, no one here is saying that anyone needs to read Badiou before they go to organize. It's no, definitely not. I, it does not matter in that sense. But if ideas are something that do matter to you and you want to sit there and have a, a construction of the world that that means the world could look different than it does right now, that's really what this is for. It's to, yeah. to create the idea. Yeah, because the role of philosophers in the struggle is to clarify the important questions that we need to ask going forward. I think that's basically paraphrasing what Zizek said, is that would be the specific role of the philosopher in this, is to yeah clarify what's important, what the questions are, and try to distinguish them from irrelevant questions, or at least give these questions meaning. That's that's sort of the way, so we have to think of the role of the philosopher, right? Because it's a collective effort, requires many different people wearing many different hats. And I mean, the philosopher plays an interesting role because of what a philosopher is, <laughs> a university educated, pie in the sky, highfalutin writer, but this kind of proves they can still have value, or at least it it tries to argue that they have a central value to the struggle. All right, I think we can call that episode one of the series and maybe we'll try to find uh, one of the ones that argues against him for the next one. But anyway, uh, good episode one, guys. Thank you everyone out there for listening and let's talk later. That was great. Let's bring this operation to a halt.